currently, one of my greatest pleasures in life is reading the first book of the Chronicles of Narnia to my children at bed. I like, even though sort of one of them's starting to get a little bit old, um, they all come round and we go around to the boys' bedroom and we're going through the first book of the Chronicles of Narnia. It's called The uh, Magician's uh, Nephew. And um, I think I've tried to read it when they were too young before, but finally they're at an age where they're really enjoying it. And they actually demand that I give them a quiz before we read it. And so before we read it, uh, we have a quiz of everything that's happened up to that point. And so they know all the names, they know all the events, they know the uh, chronology of adventure that's led up to this point. And they often fight and argue and bicker to try and get the right answer in who said it first. Um, and, but one of the most exquisite moments is when I've read a chapter, one of them's asleep, and um, then I stop, and like there's a cliffhanger, and they're like, no, we want to know what happens next. We want to hear how this story uh, uh, unveils. We want to know what happens to and the, the particular protagonists, the Diggory and Polly, um, and then there's Jade, the witch, which you may know from the Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe, and there's an, a lion. Anyone know the lion's name? Aslan. Aslan. We all know Aslan, the, uh, possibly the greatest uh, um, sort of uh, picture of Jesus in fiction that you'll ever find. Um, and there's a privilege in telling stories. There's a, there's a privilege, especially in, in, in sharing stories with uh, uh, eager minds. You know, minds that are wanting to hear something, to hear an adventure that moves them, that causes them to wonder, that causes to, uh, for them to use their imagination and to develop a bit of excitement as to how the story um, is going to pan out. Now, uh, during the week, uh, I went for a swim and then head to the sauna. And uh, the sauna was one of the greatest places in Crawley because you go to the sauna in K2 and you never know who's going to go there. Um, a few weeks ago, I was there and there was a few lads that I recognised from Bubush and kept my head down. Um, and they were talking about their latest criminal acts. And I felt, uh, I felt slightly guilty that I needed to... Um, that I shouldn't be telling this to the police and I shouldn't really know their identities and so I left pretty quick. Other times you hear uh, people talking about their holidays or their latest family dramas and it's a wonderful window into people's lives because they seem to uh, be very happy to share the frankest details uh, at the K2 sauna. And this week uh, it was quite interesting. I was in the K2 sauna and there was this bloke and he was very confident uh, and, and he took up most of the space. Um, and he was speaking about how he would get angry and how he would use yoga to help him deal with this anger. Um, it sounded like he had a real problem with it. Um, and uh, what he would need would be this emptying of his mind, that he'd sort of commune with the oneness of the universe and allow uh, that to sort of uh, diffuse the situation. And there was this other guy, and he was irate, and you could see it. And he was like, what are you talking about, emptying your mind? Is there any way to deal with your anger? And then despite this man's confidence, and he had like the approval of most of the uh, sauna, there was this other guy, and we were all sweating, and uh, we are all hot, and this other guy just couldn't help himself. He said, forget your vagueness, this 
this wishy-washy idea of oneness with the universe. What you want is the Bible. What you want is a story. What you want is a narrative that you are part of. It's not this vague oneness of the universe that you suddenly uh, lose yourself in. You are part of this narrative. You are part of an exciting story. You have a purpose and a meaning and that you have a personality and a character because these are important things that God has given you. And uh, uh, it, it was just a, a fantastic interaction uh, uh, to see. Today, we have a story. You know, sometimes we read, uh, specific, particularly the epistles of Paul, you know, they're, they're like uh, advice, um, they're denouncements, uh, uh, they're uh, all different things. But in the Bible, we also have lots of stories. And this morning, we're going to look at a story um, in the context of these divine questions that are asked throughout Scripture, there will be a divine question that is asked of all of us. But it happens within a remarkable story. And the story is fascinating. And it has meaning. So you should find yourself drawn along with the story. And you should also be able to see the meaning of the story. In some ways, it's a bit like some of the parables Jesus told, but it's a, um, it's a historical event. So if you've got a Bible, turn to um, perhaps a, a book of the Bible you're less familiar with, Numbers. Um, and we're looking at Numbers chapter 22. So the first five books are written by Moses. They're called the Torah. Um, and uh, amongst these, we have um, the book of Numbers. And we're going to read from verse 1. We're going to do a bit of reading today. Um, I make no apology for that. I'm trying to read a little bit more scripture up the front than just the odd verse here and there. And it says this. Then the Israelites uh, travelled to the plains of Moab. Do you know where they were travelling from? You, um, so where were they in slavery? Egypt. So they're in slavery in Egypt, and where would the Israelites be going to as they left Egypt? Would they be going to the promised land? Yes, Kevin, they would. Excellent answer. So chapter 22, verse 1. Then the Israelites travelled to the plains of Moab. Put your hand up if you've been to Moab. No? Okay. Um, so they were going to the plains of Moab, and they camped along the Jordan opposite Jericho. Now, Balak, son of Zippor, saw all the Israel had done to the Amorites. And Moab was terrified. Everyone say terrified. terrified. That feeling is critical to this story. They were terrified because there were so many people. Indeed, Moab was filled with dread. Everyone say dread. dread. So we've got the words of terrified and dread. So you need to remember that in this story. They were filled with terror and dread because of the Israelites. The Moabites said to the elders of Midian, this horde is going to lick up everything around us as an ox licks up the grass of the field. Um, they were thinking the Israelites, they were just going to lay waste to everything because they were a powerful nation um, on a mission from God, literally. So Balak, son of Zippor, who was king at Moab at the time, sent messengers to summon Balaam. Everyone say Balaam. Balaam. Um, so summon Balaam, son of Beor, who was at Pethor, near the river Euphrates. 
um, in his native land. And Balak said, a people has come out of Egypt and they cover the face of the land and they have settled next to me. Some of you feel like that with uh, Kilmwood Vale, having been built near Bubish. They cover the face of the land and they've settled next to me. Now come and put a curse on these people because they are too powerful for me. Perhaps then I will be able to defeat them and drive them out of their land. This request is driven by fear and terror and dread. For I know that whoever you bless is blessed and whoever you curse is cursed. And then verse 7. The elders of Moab and Midian left, taking with them the fee for divination. And when they came to Balaam, they told him what Balak had said. So, the nation of Israel is passing from Egypt to the Promised Land. And they pass near the plains of Moab. And their size, the magnitude of these people, sends this neighbouring kingdom into an anxiety attack. They are petrified of this massive group of people that have caused uh, uh, the defeat of so many other nations. And uh, Moab knows that it doesn't have the military might to defeat Israel. So what they do is they call out a famous spiritual mercenary. He's like a gun for hire in the spiritual realm. He said uh, he is known to bless and curse for money. Um, at no point... In the Old Testament, is Balaam called a prophet? He seems to be someone that uh, uh, is not one of God's people. Um, and in fact, he dies uh, badly um, in the, uh, as the story uh, goes on. So we're not dealing with a believer here. We're dealing with someone who deals with the spiritual realm and who curses and blesses for money. Hopefully that does not sound like a Christian or a Jew to you. And so the envoys go out to Balaam and they say, we want you to curse Israel for money because they are too big and we are frightened of them. Hopefully you understand the story up to this point. So we go then to verse 8. Spend the night here, Balaam said to them, and I will report back to you with the answer the Lord gives me. So the Moabite officials stayed with him. And then God came to Balaam. I suggest to you that was unexpected. He did not expect God Almighty to uh, come to him. He is a uh, spiritual mercenary. He is into divination. He is into things that are ungodly. Nevertheless, God himself turns up and he asks, who are these men with you? And Balaam said to God, Balak, son of Zippor, king of Moab, sent me this message. And then we have the message repeated for those of you who have poor attention span. A people has come out of Egypt, covers the face of the land. Now come and put a curse on them. Perhaps I will be able to fight them and do, drive them away. So uh, Balaam uh, repeats to God this message that he's received. But God said to Balaam, do not go with them. You must not put a curse on these people. You can't put a curse on them because they are blessed. I really like that. These uh, Moabites wanted to see Israel cursed. And God goes, you can't curse them because I've blessed them. You can't curse what God Almighty's blessed. Um, 
And so he goes on. The next morning, Balaam got up and said to Balak's officials, and you can imagine the downcast look on his face because he was greedy and wanted that divination fee. Go back to your own country, for the Lord has refused to let me go with you. And so the Moabite officials returned to Balak and said, Balaam refused to come with us. Then Balak sent more officials, more numerous and more distinguished than the first. And they came to Balaam and said, and this should be familiar to you, this is kind of the third time um, we've got this request. This is what Balak, son of Zippor, says, do not let anything keep you from coming to me, to me because I will reward you handsomely if Balaam was a cartoon character, he would have dollar signs flick up in his eyes. Um, I will reward you handsomely and do whatever you say. And put a cur um, come and put a curse on these people for me. And Balaam answered them, even if Balak gave me all the silver and gold in the palace, I could do nothing great or small uh, to go beyond the command of the Lord my God. Now spend the night here so that I can find out what the Lord tells me. And the, that night, God came to Balaam and said, since these men have come to summon you, go with them, but only do what I tell you. Balaam is and gets his work uh, by being a spiritual mercenary, uh, a spiritual gun for hire. And as he goes through this spiritual routine of consulting the voices in his head or whatever, he discovers himself conversing with God. And God asks, who are these men with you? And suddenly, everything changes. Balaam can't be a fraud. You know that he can go up and has like this sort of a, a, um, a sort of little pantomime of cursing the Israelites. He can't do that, and he can't channel, which sometimes happens in the Old Testament and the New. He can't channel some sort of demonic activity. He can't be a fraud, and he can't be uh, into divination here because God has got him. He has to be accountable to this God of Israel who has already blessed them. And so the magician uh, uh, repeats the request made to him and, and says, you can't touch these people, they're blessed. And the delegates go away and then come back with more prestige and wealth. More things to uh, entice Balaam to curse Israel. And Balaam finally goes... And he gets to go. And the question is, what happens next? What's going to happen when he meets the Moabites? Is he going to have this pantomime in, uh, in the face of God's commands? Or is he going to agree to what God has said to him? And now we're going to read a very, very famous Jewish story. It appears... Uh, not only here in the Numbers, which is a, a, a book of Moses, but uh, the Apostle Peter refers to it in his letters. Uh, the uh, Apostle Jude refers to it in his letter. And it also appears in the book of Revelation, that John and Patmos refers to it. So it's quite an important story, and it conveys an, an important spiritual truth. Um, and it's a comedy. It's a joke. It's supposed to inspire laughter and ridicule. Uh, and Balaam becomes the butt of a joke. And it's okay to laugh at Balaam because he is shown up and exposed as an idiot. 
and it's supposed to be a warning for the rest of us. It's a cautionary tale. So if you've got a Bible, turn to Numbers chapter 22 and we're reading from verse 21. It's ridiculous, this story, and it is designed deliberately to appear so. Balaam, this magician, this sorcerer for hire, got up in the morning, saddled his donkey and went up with the Moabite officials. Has anyone ever met a donkey? Ridden one? Fed one? A few hands have gone up. Of all the animals of God's kingdom, do you think donkeys rank up highly in the most intelligent of the animals? No, they're not regarded as the, the sort of Mensa candidates that others. I think I've heard that like octopuses are and probably dolphins and that sort of thing. Donkeys, they don't feature that. Yes, Andy? Ah, oh, monkeys. Right. Okay, well, so of all the animals in God's kingdom, donkeys don't feature as candidates for Mensa. You know, like, if you're going to have a, uh, um, a high category for very clever animals, donkeys aren't going to get in. And so he saddles his donkey. But God was very angry when he went. He knew Balaam's heart. Balaam is greedy. He wants that prestige. He wants that honour. And he wants cash. And so God was very angry when he went and the angel of the Lord stood in the road to oppose him. The angel of the Lord, this is a, a, an incredible messenger from God. Someone who's been with God and emanates God's presence. You know, uh, it, uh, everything changes when the angel of the Lord's around. So the angel of the Lord stood to oppose him. Balaam, this spiritual uh, uh, wonder worker, was riding on his donkey, and his two servants with him, was with him, were with him. When the donkey saw the angel of the Lord standing in the road with a drawn sword in his hand, the donkey turned off the road into a field. Balaam beat it to get it back on the road. Sorry, if you're into animal rights, Balaam wasn't, and uh, uh, he was ticked off that this donkey wasn't going where he thought it should. Then the angel of the Lord stood in a narrow path along through the vineyards with walls on both sides. So we are finding this channel, this place that the donkey is going to get stuck in. The uh, comedy value is increasing. When the donkey saw the angel of the Lord, it pressed close to the wall, crushing Balaam's foot against it and uh, if you care to, you can imagine a little expletive coming out of Balaam's voice as this flipping stupid donkey uh, uh, bangs against the wall. Um, and so he beat the donkey again. Poor donkey. Then the angel of the Lord moved on ahead and stood in a narrow place where there was no room to turn, either to the right or to the left. When the donkey saw the angel of the Lord, it lay down under Balaam. And Balaam, who was ticked off before was angry and beat it with his staff. And then verse 28. It's a great, great comedy thing. Then the Lord opened the donkey's mouth. And the donkey said to Balaam, What have I done to you to make you beat me these three times? Balaam, after getting over the shock of being spoken to by his donkey, answered, You have made a fool of me. 
If only I had a sword in my hand, I would kill you here and now. And the donkey, still having his mouth opened by the Lord, said to Balaam, Am I not your own donkey, which you have always ridden to this day, and have I not been in the habit of doing this to you? The donkey is proving his credentials as a good donkey. If you are getting a sense of the ridiculous here, that is deliberate. It's incredibly uh, funny, this whole scenario. And Balaam said, oh, no, you're not, you've not been in the habit of doing this donkey who suddenly I'm talking to. Then the Lord opened Balaam's eyes and he saw the angel of the Lord standing in the road with his sword drawn. So he bowed low and fell face down. Then the angel of the Lord asked him, why have you beaten this donkey three times? I've come here to oppose you because your path is a reckless one before me. The donkey saw me. The donkey, Balaam, the spiritual elite man, didn't see him. The donkey saw me and turned away from me these three times. Balaam is not coming out well in this whole story, and that is very deliberate and uh, uh, the point. If it had not turned away, I would have certainly killed you by now, but I would have, uh, but I would have spared it. So Balaam has now been saved by a donkey. And Balaam said to the angel, Lord, I have sinned. I did not realize you were standing in the road to oppose me. Now, if you are displeased, I will go back. And the angel of the Lord said to Balaam, go with the men, but only speak what I tell you. So Balaam went with Balak's officials. And then uh, we have a little bit more of the story. And then we have this. So were the Moabites after Balaam cursing or blessing Israel? This is a question to you. Cursing. Was it cursing or blessing? Anyone else? Cursing or blessing? Who have you been paying attention? Blessing. Right. So, uh, the Moabites wanted Balaam to curse Israel. I realize there's a few different parties involved and it can be a bit confusing. But the Moabites wanted and were going to pay Balaam to curse the Israelites. This is the curse that Balaam is paid to utter over the Israelites. Then Balaam spoke this message. And we're in verse uh, 6 of chapter 23. Then Balaam spoke his message. Balak brought me from Aram, the king of Moab from the eastern mountains. Come, he said, curse Jacob. And Jacob uh, stands for the whole of Israel. Um, curse Jacob for me. Come, denounce Israel. And then he says this. How can I curse those whom God has not cursed? How can I denounce those whom God has not denounced? From the rocky peaks I see them and from the heights I view them. I see a people who live apart and do not consider themselves one of the nations who can count the dust of Jacob or uh, even number a fourth of Israel. Let me die uh, the death of the righteous and may my final end be like theirs. Balak, let me tell you, he is cheesed off. Balak said to Balaam, what have you done to me? I brought you to curse my enemies, but you have done nothing but bless them. And Balaam answered, must I not speak what the Lord puts in my mouth? This is a very clear Jewish story found uh, in the book of Numbers. And it's funny. It's a comedy. Uh, you can track 
what happens, the movement and the characters all have their different parts to play. And to be honest, I should be able to leave it there and you know what it's saying because it's fairly transparent. And uh, we could finish off and uh, go and interrupt the kids. But I've spent too much time to leave it just that. So we're going to go on a bit. So we have in Balaam this prophet, this uh, spiritual mercenary, this gun for hire. We have a very familiar type of person. He projects spirituality to impress people. We might today call him a spiritual influencer. And he uses that for personal gain. He uses that to line his pockets and to make a living. He uses his spirituality to earn a buck and get bread. And this is common in the world at large, outside Christianity and Judaism. You have lots of people making their money by projecting a confident spirituality. And sadly, you have people inside Christianity who sort of project a confident faith and line their pockets uh, with the prophets from their books and uh, uh, ministry tapes and everything else. And God interrupts Balaam's trade and he uses these words who are these men the company Balaam is keeping exposes the fact that he has constructed this sort of uh, fake spirituality so that his reputation um, will precede him and people will employ him to bless and curse people it's uh, a place of using spirituality in a, in a selfish ambition. And I wonder what questions God could ask us this, could ask us this morning to expose that our faith is a little less genuine and loving and selfless than we like to imagine. If you've got a Bible, turn to Galatians chapter 2. So it's one of um, Paul's letters, and it was to the Christians in Galatia. And it says this in Galatians chapter 2, verse 11. When Cephas came to Antioch, does anyone know who Cephas is? Peter. Peter. Glad to hear Peter knows who Cephas is, because it's Peter. So, uh, uh, when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face. So this is Paul opposing Peter. Because he stood condemned. For before certain men uh, came from James, Peter used to eat with Gentiles. And that's all well and good and is right and proper. Because he had this vision um, that he's allowed to. But when these men from James arrived from Jerusalem... He began to draw back and separate himself from Gentiles. You know, these heathen, these pagans, these non-Jews. Because he was afraid of those who belonged to the circumcision group. Peter had become afraid of the Jews and wanted uh, uh, to keep step with them. The other Jews joined him in his hypocrisy. So that by their hypocrisy, even Barnabas was led astray. And he's another good guy uh, uh, from the New Testament. God uses Paul to confront Peter because Peter was keeping the wrong company. Peter was finding himself with Jews and he was finding himself at ease with Jews and he was 
adopting again Jewish ways and customs that he'd been told to no longer cherish. Peter was making his faith convenient, something easy and palatable to himself and those around him. Peter was allowing these other people to influence him so that he would hang out only with people that looked like him. And this same phenomenon that we find in Balaam and with Peter, we find with ourselves too. Some of us only hang out with people that make us feel comfortable. They're only the people that uh, endorse our biases. Some of us only hang out with people and it creates, and uh, it's a, a new term, of an echo chamber where we all agree the same things and we, and we just increase uh, uh, a single voice. And Christians do it by just hanging out with Christians. You just see them, Christians, day in, day out. And uh, it increases your biases and prejudices. Um, and it's safe. You know, if you're hanging out with Christians, life is safe and easy. And you become separated from those that don't know Jesus. And suddenly you start to look down your nose at them, start to demonise them. Uh, and at best, people that don't know Jesus are strangers and you don't know any. You just hang out with Christians and you don't know any non-Christians. Or at worst, they become enemies. You see them as people that upset your equilibrium, as people um, that do you no good. And the question is, who are these people you're hanging out with? Who do you choose to spend your time with? Alternatively, you don't just choose Christians to hang out with. You just choose family. You know, you hang out with your family all the time because they're the easiest people to get along with. Or you just hang out with work colleagues or even non-believers and you don't hang out with the church because that means you don't need to worry about your own faith and your conduct um, and your beliefs. You just hang out with people like this. And we choose to hang out with those that means that we don't build the church, that we don't serve other Christians, that we don't learn to express love and to have it love expressed to us. And the question goes to us, who do you hang out with? Who are your people? Who are your chosen uh, groups during the week? And the invitation is to not be like Balaam and Peter, but to hang out with church and the lost, to hang out with family and other people to make sure that you don't segregate yourself and just find yourself in an echo chamber uh, um, where your prejudices are just enhanced. Now, the story of the donkey isn't one like the letters of Paul's where you can sort of uh, deconstruct every sentence and uh, sort of uh, find meaning behind every uh, comma and full stop. It's supposed to be general. The idea is that it is a story that we can easily interpret and find a rationale behind. You should be able to laugh at Balaam because he is an object of ridicule in this story. Balaam is a joke and it is okay to point the finger and laugh at him. And it is good to allow the funniness of this story to bed itself in our hearts so that we are changed. The point of this donkey story is that Balaam thought he was a great spiritual leader, 
but he couldn't even see an angel right in front of him because he was spiritually blind. This guy was not an uh, all-singing, all-dancing, uh, spiritual wonder worker. He was blind, deaf, and dumb. Okay, And he couldn't even see an angel in front of him. And to enhance this point, to make sure you don't miss it, a donkey, an idiot livestock, sees this angel and causes Balaam to stop on his journey. A donkey sees what Balaam can't. I wonder how many spiritual leaders you know like that, that donkeys are more spiritual than they are in truth. And so we have this ignorant uh, beast of burden. He's used to humiliate this person who thought he was all of that. If you've got a Bible, turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Because this um, reality is found in lots of people's lives. So 2 Corinthians chapter 4 verse 1. Therefore... Since through God's mercy we have this ministry, we do not lose heart. Rather, we have renounced secret and shameful ways. We do not use deception, nor do we distort the word of God. On the contrary, we set forth the truth plainly. If anyone complicates the gospel, then there is a problem. If you have to buy their ministry tapes, subscribe to their podcast or uh, anything else, then there is a truth there that if the truth is not plain and you have to buy into someone else's key to it, then theirs isn't the truth at all. It should be clear and plain, this gospel that we cherish. Um, And we commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. Paul's conduct and behaviour was good. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. The God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers. Hopefully that blindness makes you think of Balaam, who couldn't even see an angel in the road before him with a sword. Um, So that they cannot see the light of the gospel that displays the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we preach is not ourselves... But Jesus Christ as Lord, and ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, let the light shine out of the darkness, made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of knowledge of God's glory displayed in the face of Christ. Paul explains that those people that don't know Jesus, that don't know he lived died and rose again for their sins, they have a a blindness. They have an inability to see spiritual truths. They are Balaam. Even a donkey can see what they are blind to. And even the incredible plain truth of the gospel, which uh, uh, which Christians have presented for 2,000 years, it doesn't convince them because they are blind because they have their eyes closed to the truth. And there's this wonderful, reassuring thing this morning. If God can open the mouth of a donkey to open Balaam's eyes, then God can even use our mouths to open the eyes of those around us. Some of you may not feel particularly articulate 
or clever, that you fail, you struggle to marshal arguments, that perhaps your understanding of the gospel is not where it was, that you may be a bit shy and retiring, that you may uh, be a little afraid of uh, uh, stepping forward and being exposed. But the truth is, God can use a donkey to open Balaam's eyes. And so that is like the lowest possible bar. And so God can use any of you who I can guarantee are cleverer than a donkey. You can speak to other people. Even if they are well-educated, even if they are uh, impressive with their language, if they don't know Jesus, they need to hear what you have to say. And you don't have to have clever arguments or impressive-sounding words. You just open your mouth and God can use what you say to change their hearts. Because it is not uh, the vessel that does it, but it is God working through us. And so there's an invitation in this story. Speak out for Jesus. When you hear someone say, uh, that meditation or, or uh, uh, Eastern practices are somehow the way to deal with spiritual issues, you can say, I've got another way forward. I've got something else that you could uh, think about. Sometimes our words open eyes. And sometimes, and if you've been a Christian for any amount of time, you'll know that even if you do speak out Jesus out loud, that sometimes those blind eyes remain closed, um, you will know that people are resistant to the gospel. That all these wonderful encouragements to talk to people about Jesus up the front can be a little harsher in the real world. And Paul says... In this passage, he says, don't lose heart. Just because when you've opened your mouth that the blind person hasn't instantly seen, don't lose heart. Be encouraged. Keep going at it. Don't give up. Don't retreat to your echo chambers. Don't only go to the places where you feel safe. Don't lose heart. Have courage. Go and speak and tell. Now we're going to go to this last point. I want you to consider that great blessing that Balaam spoke over Israel. He'd been paid money to curse Israel, but Balaam couldn't curse them. He couldn't curse a people that God had blessed. And uh, I think this is the, uh, the most uplifting point from this morning, which is while I'm ending with it. Balaam couldn't curse a blessed people. He said, how can I curse those whom God has not cursed? Let me die the death of the righteous and my final end be like theirs. God intervened and stopped Balaam speaking a curse over his people. Even if the curse was spoken, it probably wouldn't have achieved anything. But God makes this story known to encourage each of us. God is sovereign. God is in charge. And he even has a plan for the words and actions of the godless who don't bear him any mind. Even the blind and the spiritually 
closed eyes. God is over them. Um, and so uh, we're going to end with Romans chapter 8. This is uh, possibly the great, one of the greatest chapters in Scripture. Um, and I try not to read it every Sunday because it's always applicable almost to every situation. Um, but I want to read a little bit of Romans 8. And I want you to enjoy it because that's what it's there for. Listen to this. Romans chapter 8, verse 31. Um, and I can barely read it for all the underlinings and circlings and everything else. And it says this. What then shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? No one. You don't have any adversaries of worth any salt at all. He who did not spare his own son, but gave his son up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? How is it? God will. If he didn't keep his son from dying, there is nothing that he will not keep from us. Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? No one. You can't be accused of anything. God has set you aside for himself. God has justified us, Paul says. Who is the one that condemns? And if you felt condemned this week, you know, you, you haven't quite followed that narrow path. You know, you haven't done quite what you know you should. And then Paul reminds us, no one can condemn you because Jesus paid it all. God has justified you. Christ who died, who more than that, who was raised to life and is at the right hand of God and there's this wonderful sense of sovereignty and power and glory. And is the right hand of God is interceding for us. If Jesus is interceding for you, then you are all right. You can't undo that intercession. You can't counteract that. If Jesus is for you, then you are good. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Name someone. Name someone that can separate you from the love of Christ. You can't. You stay, you stay silent because the truth is no one, nothing, not your family, not your enemies, no one can separate you from the love of Christ. And trouble can't? Or hardship, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or the sword. And perhaps we would add mental illness in today's culture. None of this will separate us from the love of Christ. And verse 36 says this. For your sake we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. And verse 37. In all these things... We are more than conquerors. Everyone say, more than conquerors. More than conquerors. More than conquerors. How? Through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. What a wonderful thing to read. What a glorious thing to end with.
when we are in step with our Heavenly Father, we have an ally and ad advocate that is unchallengeable. He's unrivaled in all the creation. There is no one like your God. There is no accusation that can come against you that can hold water. Regardless of the opposition you have faced, the week gone and the week ahead, you can have complete assurance that God's love will prevail in your life and that he will keep you close because it's his purpose. Not because you're really, really clever or really, really good or really, really noble. It's because of his love. And so we find in the book of Numbers, in the book of Romans, that this truth is here today, that people and things and situations and circumstances and family members and friends and enemies, they will try and curse you. And God says, no, this is my chosen people. You can't speak that over them. It has no power because God is for us. Through all that love, God is unveiling a story in our lives that demonstrates his love and justice, his grace and holiness. And there is nothing and no one that can frustrate his story in your life. You can be reassured this morning that that is true. And people rob themselves of context and purpose when we try and chase oblivion, when we try and uh, uh, pursue Buddhism and yoga and Eastern meditation and oneness of the universe, because we were not made for this, we were made for story. The Christian life is all about the richness of the divine story and it's played out in every day of our lives. Please bow your heads.